the funeral service is over. And their father has been laid to rest in the bosom of Mother Earth. And the sons of Jacob are on their way home from the cemetery. Joseph is bowed down with grief. But Joseph's brothers are suffering tortures and agonies that Joseph does not know. Now there's no doubt that those brothers are grieving over the loss of their father. But folks, the major source of their grief is in their suffering is not grief. The major source of their suffering is fear. Deadly, agonizing, nagging, paralyzing fear. They're afraid. They're afraid for themselves and they're afraid for their wives and they're afraid for their children. Because you see, now they're afraid of their powerful brother, Joseph. Now that Jacob is dead, they're remembering the desperate wrong that they did to Joseph so many years ago. Because long ago, when Joseph was too weak to strike back, they sought to do to Joseph an evil worse than death. They had sold him into slavery. But... This once weak brother has now become the most powerful man in Egypt. He's the prime minister of Egypt. Now they've not forgotten that long ago Joseph pledged his forgiveness to them. But knowing their own hearts, knowing their own thought processes, they have a hard time believing Joseph's sincerity. They're quite certain in their own mind that Joseph only held back his revenge out of respect for their father, Jacob. And now that Jacob is dead, they're afraid that Joseph is going to extract his pound of flesh from them in revenge. So we see these brothers cringing in fear as they come into the presence of their brother Joseph begging for his forgiveness. And Joseph, Joseph who is always magnificent, rises to his supreme height. And he grandly tells those brothers, fear not. Am I in the place of God? But as for me, or as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. That, folks, is our text in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. It's a story that comes out of a day long ago in history. It's a story that's in the very first book of the Bible. And for some people it's dimmed by the dust of the sands of time. 
But even though it's an old story, there's a freshness in that story that's just as fresh as the first flowers of spring. That story has an abiding newness that makes it at home in the 21st century just as it was in that far off day when it took place. Nothing could be more timely than this story from the life of Joseph. It's a story that's both fascinating and it's helpful. It tells the story of one who was pounded by the cruel fist of evil. But he refused to yield to that evil and he changed it into good. It tells of a man who was driven by a tempestuous storm that was meant to wreck him. But he compelled that tempest to bring him to his desired haven. It tells of a man that was greatly wronged and then greatly and grandly forgave. So it's a story that's refreshing to us in our day and time. And you wonder, how did Joseph come to this point? How did Joseph come to this tragic experience? Well, if you remember the story, and I'm sure most of us do, Joseph and his brothers were in part victims of their dysfunctional home life, pure and simply. There were four sets of children in the home that Joseph grew up with, with four separate mothers. It reminded me a bit of a movie out of the 60s starring Henry Fonda and Lucille Ball where a widower with a bunch of children meets a widow with a bunch of children and they get married and then they have a child. But this is a lot more complicated than that. The title of that movie was Yours, Mine, and Ours. And it also made me think of that old joke about the man with a Several children that met the one widow with several children and they had a child and they had a second child and then he comes in and says, Honey, your kids and my kids are beating up our kids. And that's kind of what was going on here. This family that Joseph grew up in had both of those I've just mentioned beat. And that in itself made that home a fertile field for some trouble. Because Joseph was the favorite son of the favorite wife. And so being the son of the favorite wife helped Joseph become at his birth his father's favorite. And then there were some other reasons for this favoritism. Joseph was easily the most talented and the most attractive child in that family. Early on, Joseph's father discovered that he was a boy with no ordinary gifts. Almost from his birth, he was the object of his father's best hopes and his father's best dreams. So naturally, 
this rare boy, Joseph, had a peculiar place in his father's love. Now, Jacob was not to blame for giving Joseph first place in his heart. And neither was he to blame for fixing his finest hopes on this boy, Joseph. But Jacob was to blame for openly showing his favoritism to Joseph, both to Joseph and to the others. That wasn't good for Joseph. It wasn't good for Joseph's brothers. Everybody in that family knew who came first. They knew that Joseph was the spoiled pet of the family. It was an ugly fact and it made itself apparent in many ways as far as Jacob was concerned. The most glaring and most objectionable probably was that flashy sport coat that Jacob gave Joseph. He was better dressed than his brothers were. That in itself would have been an offense. But the offensiveness was greater because there was a significance to that coat. That coat meant that Joseph, though the youngest except for Benjamin, would become and be the head of the clan. And then you have to realize something else. Part of Joseph's problems were brought on by Joseph himself. The fact that he was his father's favorite, so obviously his father's favorite, it went straight to his head. Like some folks that get drunk on power, Joseph got drunk on Joseph. He was conceited. He was arrogant. He was in love with himself. He was like that rooster that thought the sun came up every morning just to hear him crow. And that arrogance and that conceit, it colored all of Joseph's thoughts. It gave birth to some ambitious dreams that the boy had. Dreams he would have been better off if he'd kept to himself. They became quite objectionable dreams. When Joseph insisted on telling them to his brothers. I mean, they're already offended. And when he tells them his dreams, they just get more offended. One morning, for instance, Joseph swaggers out to his older brothers to tell them about a dream. He said, I dream that we're all shocking barley. And that when we finished shocking the barley and we've got our... Shocks of barley all tied up that all of your shocks of barley bowed down to mine. You know what the brothers did? They looked around to see if Jacob was anywhere around. Fortunately for Joseph, Jacob was around so they didn't beat him to a bloody pulp that day. But then there's another time that Joseph told how that the sun and the moon and eleven stars had all bowed down to him. Well, Jacob even found it difficult to tolerate that dream. And as for his brothers, they bit their lips in an inward rage, and what they did is just bided their time to get even. Well, not only was Joseph favored and conceited and obnoxious, Joseph was also a talebearer. Now, folks that tell tales, 
they're often quite interesting. But they're never very popular. At least they're not popular with those that they talk about and tell tales on. Joseph was quite fond of telling his father of the things that his rough and uncouth brothers did. Well, as you might expect, that filled his brothers with anger that soon hardened into hate. So little by little, these brothers become separated from Joseph by chasm that nothing seemed to be able to bridge. So they made up their minds at their first opportunity that they would get rid of this conceited pest no matter what the cost. But these brothers were not blameworthy any more than either Joseph or Jacob. It's true. Jacob should not have offended them by openly showing his partiality to Joseph. That was harmful both to them and to Joseph. And it's true. Joseph should have shown more humility and should have been more modest. Joseph should have had more taste and better sense than to have flaunted his importance in the face of his older brothers. But on their part, those older brothers should have remembered that Joseph was only a boy. They should have loved him well enough to be patient with him. Instead, they took vengeance on him. And they took vengeance on him with a cruelty that shocks us to this very day. You see, one day when Joseph was about 17, Jacob sent him on a mission to his brothers. The brothers were keeping their flocks in the neighborhood of Dothan. And looking across the plains one morning, they saw that they were going to have a visitor. And a little later, they recognized the swagger. And they knew who the visitor was going to be. And one of them said, here comes that dreamer. They also recognized his colorful coat. So with bitter scorn and hate, they knowingly looked at each other and they said, now's our time. Joseph had no sooner gotten there than they ripped off his colorful coat, laid violence hands on him, and threw him into the bottom of an old dry well and left him there to die. Now in that pit there were no barley shocks paying obeisance to him. And the only stars that he could see in the outer sky, they didn't bow down to him. Everything seemed totally oblivious to him. But thanks to Judah, Joseph wasn't left in this old well. Say what you want. At least Judah had a good head for business. Judah decided that instead of killing Joseph, it'd be better to just sell him as a slave. His argument was filled with what seemed to be real piety and also good sound economics. 
He said, what profit do we have if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? What, what good is that going to do us? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. That way our hand is not on him. He's our brother in our flesh. And besides that, if we sell him to the Ishmaelites, then we're going to make a profit off the deal. So they sold Joseph into slavery. And as far as they were concerned, that was going to be the end of the matter. But that wasn't the end. That was only the beginning. They thought they were sending Joseph to an untimely death. But instead of sending Joseph to an untimely death, they were sending Joseph to college. They were sending Joseph to the University of Hard Knocks. And there he was beaten up and bloodied and he was made ready for future usefulness. The road that those brothers thought would lead to a place of oblivion led to a place of prominence for their brother. A place that made their brother immortal. The long trail that they thought would end in the slave pen actually ended in a palace on the River Nile. You see, this book tells us something. It says the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph became the most Christ-like man in the Old Testament. He became the Savior of a great nation and the Savior of his own people. His cruel brothers actually promoted him. Or as they say in business, oftentimes they kicked him upstairs. And the greatest boost that Joseph ever had was given by the heaviest blows that his brothers could deal to him. And Joseph changed that evil into good. He turned a tremendous loss into gain. He turned calamity into capital. How did he do it? Sooner or later, write this down, listen to me. Sooner or later, however sheltered we are, some kind of heavy blow is going to bring us to our knees. It's going to happen. How do we turn evil into good? Well, Joseph refused to surrender. Joseph refused to just give up and quit. I can bet you, if I was a betting man. So since I'm not a betting man, I'd wager you that there were times it was a serious temptation to Joseph to do that. To just give up and quit. I mean, think about him. He's his father's favorite son. He's been stripped of his new sport coat that his father's given him. He's been thrown into a pit. Now he's slow, sold into slavery. And as he heads away in bondage and to be a slave, can you hear him say, I don't know why. Why? Why is this happening to me? I've tried to live right. I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried to do the decent and fair thing. And look where it's gotten me. Here I am, a slave. Then a little later, he finds himself in Potiphar's house, faced with a great temptation. He might have said, well, what's the use? I might as well quit. I might as well give up. It's safe to be unclean, and it's unsafe to be decent. 
Why don't I just take the easy way? But even though He was cast off by men, and even though He seemingly was forsaken by God, Joseph still believed it was better to be loyal than to be disloyal. Joseph still believed it was better to be clean than to be unclean. And even though he was tortured by doubt, Joseph lived up to the very best that he knew. In the darkest hours of his life, Joseph refused to surrender. Joseph refused to destroy himself with hate. Joseph refused to become soured down in the depths of his soul. Now you think about it. I want you to look back by an eye of faith and imagine the temptation Joseph would have faced when those brothers came cringing into his presence. What would you have wanted to do? (laughs) I know what I'd have wanted to do. I'd have been sorely tempted to get even with them. You would have too, if you'd be honest. I'd have been sorely tempted to give them a piece of my mind. But Joseph, the most Christ-like man of the Old Testament, refused to kindle the fires of hell in his own soul by giving way to hatred in his heart. And refusing to hate, he also refused to seek revenge. He didn't try to get even with these men that had tried to ruin him. How many times have you heard the old say, well, revenge is sweet. I've heard it a lot. But I have never in my life known anyone who indulged in revenge who seemed to have found any abiding sweetness in that revenge. Refusing to hate. Joseph also refused to become an avenger. He refused to assume the throne of Almighty God. He asked quite sanely, Am I in the place of God? So not only did Joseph refuse to hate and seek vengeance, Joseph also freely forgave. And it was that forgiveness that made Joseph's salvation possible. That was what made Joseph a blessing to the whole world and to all the subsequent centuries that have come and gone since then. It was that refusal to hate and seek revenge. It was that freely forgiving that made it possible for Joseph to live within the will of God. Our God is a God of love. No one with hatred in their heart can have fellowship with God. John tells us if any man says he loves God while he hates his brother, he's a liar. 
That's what the apostle said. Folks, that statement would be just as true if it would come from the lips of an atheist. Without this forgiveness on the part of Joseph, God could not have changed his evil into good. God can cooperate with someone who has love in their heart. God can no more cooperate with someone harboring hatred in their heart than God can undo the law of sowing and reaping as it's contained in this book. How did He do it? How was Joseph able to forgive? The first step toward victory was putting the responsibility for his suffering where it belonged. And that was on the shoulders of his brothers. He refused to blame God. How often do we go through deep waters and we say, Why God? Why? Why did you do this to me? Joseph didn't blame God. He refused to blame God for what those antagonistic brothers had done to him. Now before we say, well, of course, that's what he should have done. Let's take inventory. There are very few sins that we are more prone to commit than that of blaming God when we suffer at the hands of others. Joseph refused to blame God for the evil deeds of wicked men. And Joseph was able to forgive because Joseph realized God was constantly trying to change evil into good in his life. What did he say to those brothers? He says, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. It's like Joseph saying through all that he suffered, God has been on his side. And because of the help of God, the worst that's ever happened to him became the very best that could have happened. Realizing God's amazing goodness to him. Joseph's heart became full of love. And with a heart full of love, hate was not possible. And Joseph was able to forgive. And forgiving, forgiving, Joseph found a home within the will of God. And finding a home within the will of God his tragedy was transformed to triumph. Folks, that's always the case. Paul would say, and we know, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Romans 8 verse 28. Paul didn't say that everything that happens to us is going to be good. But he says all things work together for good to them that love God. So the question before the house this morning is, do you love God? Loving God is more than just saying the words. It's living God's kind of life. It's making Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of all of your life. And it all starts when we become a Christian. When in simple trusting faith we confess the name of Christ and repent of our sins and 
were buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of past sins. And then it continues as we faithfully live the way God would have us to live. Evil was changed to good in the life of Joseph. Because Joseph was living within the will of God. Are you living within the will of God this morning or do you need to make changes? Now's the opportunity to do it as we stand and while we sing.